can be scary when you think about how much of our so-called personal and confidential information is actually accessible in so many places and by so many different people and organizations. You need to learn what's being done with this information and how to keep yourself secure. Welcome to My Connected Life with Tyler Cohen Wood. When you're in control of your data in cyberspace, you feel all the more secure. Now, here's your host, Tyler Cohen Wood. Hi, welcome to My Connected Life. Um, I'm your host, Tyler Cohen Wood, and I'd like to welcome back uh, my special regular co-host, Scott Schober. Hi, Scott. Hey, how you doing there, Tyler? I'm doing good. And today we have a very special show for you. Um, We're going to talk about money, finances, gas prices, inflation, Black Friday, everything that you need to know about money. And we are very lucky to have um, international best-selling author of Technosocialism and many other books, host of the number one fintech podcast radio show, and a recent inductee into the Hall of Fintech fame, the king of fintech, Brett King. Welcome, hey. Brett. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be on the show. We're so excited to have you. I wanted to get some um, Hail to the Queen music to play in the background, but we just didn't have time for that. Um, Before we get started, I just want to make a special announcement. Um, I want to say congratulations to my 11-year-old niece, Alicia Burgess, who just landed a leading role in her winter school musical, Newsies. Congratulations, Alicia. Well done. Shout out. Shout out. So, Brett, tell us a little bit about your new book, Technosocialism, and what it's about and um, why you wanted to write it. Sure. So um, the full title is The Rise of Technosocialism, How Inequality, AI, and Climate Change Will Usher in a New World. So a bit of a mouthful. Um, But I wrote a book back in, um, this is my sixth hardcover. I wrote a book back in 2015 called Augmented, Life in the Smart Lane, which sort of described how technology was going to change our lives individually over the next couple of decades. You know, um, things like gene therapy, smart glasses, uh, um, artificial intelligence, et cetera. Um, But one of the things that sort of became clear when I was writing that book is that the societal disruptions, you know, the disruption to social coherence, the potential for that was very high. We've seen that with, you know, you know, Facebook as an example and um, and other issues in social media. Um, But with AI and climate, the disruption to our social norms, the potential was very high. So um, I basically embarked on like a five-year research journey trying to figure out how that would play out um, and came to the realization that was, you know, there was um, at least four potential outcomes in terms of broader society. And so I wanted to dive into those and find out, you know, what would be the optimal choice for humanity, you know, and what choices do we have to make over the next 20 to 30 years to um, give ourselves the best, uh, you know, chances for a sustainable, prosperous future. Wow. Can, can we delve into those four topics? Sure. So um, we we patterned this on a grid, and the grid was basic 
based on two axes. The first axis being inclusiveness or exclusionary economies. So economies that produce high inequality or economies that are more collective in their viewpoint. Um, so the US would be one of those exclusionary um, economies where you have the highest level of inequality we've seen in modern history, um, you know, since the Middle Ages effectively. Um, and then, you know, you have more inclusive economies, say like the Nordic regions or, uh, and others. Um, and then when you look at the potential timelines on the future, we look at chaotic versus planned futures. So chaotic is where we just sort of argued and debated too long. And, you know, um, so the disasters that we are potentially facing um, have a much greater impact um, versus planned societies where we try and incorporate, um, you know, these changes better into society. So that produced four quadrants. One we call the ladder stand scenario, where technology and science are largely rejected because of the upheaval, um, you know, uh, impacting society. Um, the uh, the exclusionary chaotic is what we call failed to stand. So, you know, failed states where we just waited too long. So think of like Maldives or Bangladesh, which is effectively going to be underwater by 2050. So as a global society, if we don't, you know, take, you know, clear action, then, um, you know, th those uh, economies will fail because 80% of their infrastructure and population are underwater. And then you have the two um, planned um, uh, scenarios. The exclusionary one is what we call neo-feudalism, where corporations essentially control policy, um, you know, fossil fuel lobbying groups slow down the adoption of green technologies and things like that. Um, and technology is increasingly divided in respect to access because of wealth. Um, and inequality. And then the fourth is what we call optimal humanity, which is where we use technology for good. We reduce the size of government so that the uh, social, uh, um, the basic social needs of uh, citizens are met uh, very cost effectively. And we call this uh, the techno collective or techno socialist uh, scenario. Wow. That's, uh, that's a lot. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> trying to imagine the amount of research to, to that you had to do is gotta be amazing it, it's massive like you know like just you can delve into just one area like inequality why does inequality exist and how is it generated you know um so one of the things we looked at is functionally how the u.s economy has changed in the last 40 years or so you know the u.s economy post the second world war was the most successful economy the world has ever seen um, and part of that was very strong infrastructure span, strong consumption led by a, a healthy growing middle class. But, um, you know, since the 80s, that sort of the middle class has been flattening out and now shrinking. And so what were the drivers for that? And so, you know, there's a lot of debate, you know. Um, so you have to look at economic theory. You have to look at the role immigrants play in society, you know, and each of those will take you down a, a certain rabbit hole. So, yeah, Scott, it was it was a ton of research. Very interesting, though. Wow. It, it, it's somewhat it sort of seems that that we may be in a chaotic economy at the moment in the United States. Um, you know, we have gas prices higher than they've been since I've been alive. Um, we have inflation, we have supply chain issues, we have um, Black Friday, we have yeah. more cyber attacks. I read this today and I could not believe, believe this, but 
Apparently, we had more cyber attacks in the month of September of this year than in all of 2020. Yeah, that's a great. I would say we're in the chaos portion. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is sorry, Scott, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was saying, um, you know, um, so one of the measures of the chaos theory, right, is um, how people are responding to these pressures economically. And so if you look at the populist movement, um, you know, the rise of uh, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, uh, Bolsonaro, and et cetera, you know, this is a response to economic uncertainty, economic pressure. People want to change. The system isn't working. But, you know, the same could be said of Bernie Sanders or AOC, you know, in some respect. But when you look at this on a global basis, the chaos factor is increasing. And the way we measured that is through protests. So in the last 20 years, the number of protests globally have increased by uh, 200% in terms of frequency, but they've increased 1,000% in participation. And so you've got globally a lot more people are dissatisfied that the system is just not working for them. And that's because of this increasing economic certainty. People feel it, that, you know, that the future in terms of their job and employment and, you know, um, their finances, it's not as certain as it was in the past. I wouldn't say it's very certain at all. I think that we are kind of in that chaos. And I, I believe that 2022 is really the year that's going to be pivotal because it's going to be that laying down the new groundwork of what this new normal is going to be. And I'm not sure that I see that we'll actually get our footing back until really 2023. I I think you're right. In fact, um, the way we put it in the book is that we have these rolling crises that we're going to have to field over the next 20 or so years. The first is the pandemic, but the pandemic actually accelerated the um, crisis of inequality, right? And so, um, in a, you know, if you, if you look at the data economically, um, the wealthiest Americans fared much better, both in terms of health outcomes and economic outcomes during the pandemic than the, the bottom half of uh, the American population. The wealth of the world's billionaires surpassed $10 trillion for the first time in 2020. Um, in the United States, the, uh, the top 1% of Americans now own more than the bottom 90% of Americans. And so that's all happened as a result of accelerated inequality as a result of the, the, the pandemic. But this is not probably the last pandemic we'll have in the next 20 or 30 years. Scientists are warning that because of the glacial melt, um, you know, in the uh, the colder parts of the world, that this may release primordial viruses that our immune systems haven't had to cope with for thousands of years, right? Um, and then wow. in addition to that, we have AI, which is going to destabilize, you know, traditional employment and, you know, um, change the, the, the way we work. Um, and then, you know, don't forget climate change, right? 570 coastal cities uh, affected by sea level rise by 2050 alone, not to mention food scarcity as a result of crop failures with potentially 300 million to a billion eco-refugees. That's in the next 20 to 30 years. We have to cope with all of that. And so the amount of uncertainty that's going to continue to you know, be around humanities is, is you, know, I, you know, the most contentious, disruptive period of history, I, 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 you could argue. It is, um, it is. Know. But, but, you know, at the same time, you know, it's really interesting because we've also seen more technological innovation. Exactly. 
since COVID. And, and I, I do some work in health tech and I consider health tech on one end of the willing to adopt technological advancements and fintech is all yeah. the way on the other side. They are the first number one adopters of innovative ways to protect your money and just in general. Why is that? Why is fintech such a good, a quick adopter of technology? Technology. Well, one of the reasons is that the banking sector and you know payments and finance has not really changed. You know, a lot of other industries when the internet came along were disrupted. You know, retail e-commerce, content, you know, etc. Um, but banks were fiercely resistant to um, those changes during dot-com. And so this is the wave of disruption that's happening now as a result of smartphones and other technologies. AI is, is part of that as well, that is really sort of changing the trajectory of financial services. All of the fastest growing financial service organizations in the world today are fintechs, right? Yes. Bar none. And oh, so, um, you know, that's going to change future market share as well. Well, what do you think, Brad? I'm curious, as far as a disruptor um, in the world of fintech and banking with crypto, because I think that that's probably one of the more more challenging things because it, it introduces a new set of norms for the banking industry because it's hard for them in some cases just, just to make money through adopting into this new model of, of cryptocurrency and, and, and many of the, the new norms are, are out of the picture now. Um, how big of a disruptor is that? Are they pushing crypto off, in your opinion, more so? Or are they slowly embracing and adopting and trying to find ways that they can actually profit from it? I think, um, you know, at the start, crypto was greeted with some amusement, you know, that uh, that, that wasn't really impactful. But let's face it, the, the crypto market's uh, worth in to total market cap, you know, $3 trillion now. It's a big asset class. Um, and, um, you know, so the banks have had to respond. Regulators have had to respond. Um, you know, we see various, various differences to this. Um, you know, China initially embraced crypto, but then saw it as a competitive Competitor to the one, and so they've now created the central bank digital currency, uh, E1, and they see anything that's crypto in competition to that. Um, the US saw crypto as a threat to the incumbents, and so um, you know, from the likes of the SEC and the New York Fed and others, there was a lot of pressure on crypto exchanges and things like that in the early days. It was it was very um, murky waters in terms of licensing. We're starting to get some clarity of that now, and. Now, the US is once again a big center for production of cryptocurrency, so Bitcoin mining and things like that. But this is, I think, on a greater, larger perspective, just um, you know, the side effect of our interconnectedness that um, commerce has become truly global. I mean, I can order something from Alibaba and, you know, in the, the normal conditions where supply chain isn't uh, compromised, you know, I can have it delivered to my door four days later from China, you know. Um, and so uh, the world is becoming increasingly digital and we need digital currencies to work in that, in that sort of paradigm that's emerging. Fiat-based geographical currencies really don't make a lot of sense for the 21st century in the way they did previously. You know, it, it, it's really interesting because I would also say that COVID with the need to stay apart also helped enhance the, the desire for cryptocurrency, which 
which is interesting. No, absolutely, Tyler. Um, you know, I think um, one of the elements there, you know, we saw was people really looking in, in high inflationary times, so looking for hedges, you know, against uh, a weakening US dollar that's losing its value. And crypto, you know, provides that. I mean, if you look at the likes of uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum and, and others, you know, they've been you know, consistently growing for many years now in terms of producing returns. There's an expression in the uh, Bitcoin community, in the crypto community called HODL, H-O-D-L, which means hold on for dear life, you know, um, because <laughs> of the variability or volatility in these investments, people tend to, when there's a bit of a spike, they cash out. And then, you know, like six months later, the price has doubled again. So, you know, it's like, how long can you hold on to your crypto before you uh, you, you capitalize? And I think, so a lot of this is coming into the, the uh, public domain now. Um, you know, you have the uh, that was at the LA Dodgers Stadium being renamed Crypto.com Stadium. You have yep. Matt Damon doing an ad recently for crypto. <laughs> I mean, if that's not mainstream, I don't know what is, right? It, it is becoming mainstream. And, you know, it's interesting too because as, as companies are getting hacked more and more and ransomware is just running rampant, that's the currency you use to pay your ransom, yeah. And I know the FBI says, do not pay the ransom. There's a lot of back and forth over what to do. But, you know, cryptocurrency, it's not easy for, for an average consumer to figure out how to use. And, right. you know, I, what would you recommend? Like, how, how do people get into crypto? What's the easiest way for people to do that? Because, you know, I almost want to recommend to businesses that, you kind of have some cryptocurrency laying around online right. just yeah. in case as part of your incident resp response policy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the hackers might know that too. And then you got to be careful because I think with the insurance companies all keeping a repository of some Bitcoins, hackers and cyber criminals realize that and they'll actually start to target corporations that have large insurance policies because now they say, hey, there's a payout that's quick and easy. We can negotiate it down from $200,000 to $50,000 in Bitcoin, and this insurance company is going to cave. So I think you do have to, to, to have balance there and be careful. If you make it too easy for the cyber criminals, they're going to keep increasing the demands, and then they're going to be doing this double extortion and, and lots of other things, I think. So I think there's a, there's a lot of room, I think, that needs to be figured out between law enforcement, insurance companies, and, and corporations to make sure that this doesn't keep happening, because it's certainly gotten a lot worse. The number of ransomware incidents and payouts, it's just on a logarithmic uh, curve going up and getting worse by the minute. That scares me. It, it scares me, too. When, when you have major a major industry now, now up and running of... Um, ransomware negotiators that will work with the hackers and with the business to get the ransom down, you know, that's really scary. And there's also a huge new trend of um, hackers, nation state hackers, hackers reaching out to internal employees saying, we'll give you 40% of the ransom if you install this malware on major uh, servers. And, you know, it's, it's scary. It's very scary. So, you know, here's, here's the issue is when we look at financial crime like this, um, you know, we're actually getting 
less and less effective at battling financial crime. And part of this is, is that these criminals are using technologies like artificial intelligence, they're using social engineering. Um, so, so, Scott, you, you talk all about this sort of stuff. But um, in many ways, but, you know, for individuals, it's a failure of identity infrastructure today. The identity systems we use are, are not built for the 21st century. So your mother's maiden name, your social security number, your date of birth address, these data points are no longer securable again, right, in, in, not in at the all. face of technology advances. So we need biometrics, heuristics, these sort of things. But of course, we see a lot of resistance to this because of civil rights. But um, And I know, you know, there's a lot of uh, um, attacks on China for its social credit scoring system and facial recognition. But um, China's mobile payments industry has 10,000% less fraud and identity theft than US credit cards and debit cards today because of the incorporation of biometrics. So, you know, we, we need to think about biometrics and identity as critical national infrastructure now. Um, that's that's one of the, the things that will prevent. Secondly, on the financial crime side, um, this is a data problem. Um, and what today we have in terms of tracking money laundering and financial crime like this are these very antiquated systems where you have central bank examiners go to banks, they look at these sus suspicious transaction reports, they go through with a highlighter to identify which of those actions they're going to recommend to FinCEN to look at or the Justice Department to take action against. It's, it's super primitive in terms of the way we're dealing with this. But eventually we're going to need um, you know, artificial intelligence built in into our financial crime networks, Absolutely. tracking all of these transactions that are happening and treating it like a cybersecurity threat that, you know, you've got a bad actor in, you know, I don't know, Kiev or Eastern Europe that is, you know, doing these ransomware campaigns and we have to cut off their access to the system, whether it's a cryptocurrency or the traditional, um, you know, financial services system. And so identifying those suspicious actors and cutting cutting them off from their ability to transact is, is going to be a key function, function of that sort of evolving um, cybersecurity system when it comes to financial crime. Mm. I'm glad you brought up financial crime because, I mean, financial crime is huge, whether it's, it's you know, a romance scam where, where someone is scammed into giving away their money or whether, you know, you have uh, credit card fraud, you know, and, and, and just, just to get back to your point about AI, just today, um, you know, my husband had a fraudulent charge on one of his credit cards and the, the payment, the, the, the purchase was made in Spain. And I know we're not completely there with AI yet, but don't you think there should be some algorithms that would be able to trace his, um, his pattern of usage and where he's located to immediately determine that he is not in Spain? Absolutely, you know, the, and and you know, we're using a lot of that. What we call that behavioral heuristics, right? Yes. Um, so we're using a lot of that sort of fingerprinting of your behavior already for fraud detection. That's one area where a lot of banks are already deploying that technology. Um, uh, but um, you know, smaller banks like community banks and credit unions and so forth in the US. Obviously, building out that tech is a challenge for them. Most of them rely on um, you know core system vendors and so forth. And so, you know, some of that is slower to uh, mature across the broader industry. I, th I think also sometimes the algorithms, sometimes they work really well and other times they don't work so well. Uh, I'll give you a, a case in point. 
Um, we have a house up uh, north Jersey into New York State. And sometimes I'll go shopping there with my credit card. So I'm using it here in central New Jersey. And less than 70 miles away, I'll use the credit card. And then suddenly they'll freeze it up and they'll say suspicious yeah. activity. And I'm like, I just used it for a gas station, a little shop. And now I went in to get coffee. And all of a sudden, they say it, it potentially fraudulent action. Uh, I call them up and ask. And I said, what's wrong? And they're like, well, our algorithm isn't working so well sometimes. We're not sure. But for safety, we just do it. Now, from a consumer's perspective, it's very annoying when you kind of look at it and say, well, it works, it works, and now suddenly it doesn't work, what's going on? I could see, to your point, Tyler, especially if it's in another country, those should be red flags. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. That's more obvious. And I think they usually do a better job with that. Or even oftentimes, if you're doing online shopping, they could look at an IP address and get a sense of, hey, you're in New Jersey, this purchase was made in California, something's not wrong, especially if it's card present in the person's hand and all these other flags go up. But I think a lot of the challenges are the algorithms aren't perfected yet. And and as a consumer, you get really frustrated when you stop a payment, but you're really appreciative when you're called and and you find out, hey, it was fraud and they stopped somebody from buying, you know, sporting tickets or something on the other end of the world. You're like, okay, great. They caught it. Thank you. So it's finding that balance. It's got to be really tough for for that industry, I think. No, I think people tend to be, you know, really, um, they get very frustrated by these types of, you know, we call them P fraud, right? In the industry, potential fraud uh, triggers, um, and th- but then the fir- when it finally they get one that saves them from a transaction that's clearly fraudulent, it's like ah yeah, well yeah, you know this is this is all worth the pain. Um, but you know those algorithms are getting better, Scott. You know, the, I mean, you think about it. You know, we didn't have any of this tech ten years ago. Um, no, we and, didn't. You know, so, um, you know, and it's not linear growth either. We're having exponential improvements in this. For example, in the era of, um, you know, natural language processing, um, mm-hmm. you know, the those algorithms, for example, have made significant advances over the last two to three years where, you know, um, and I know it doesn't show if you're speaking to your Alexa or your Google Home yet, but um, in, the, in the lab stuff, you know, um, this is... You know, you know, for example, translation from English to Chinese or English to Spanish, um, you know, algorithms now do that better than human translators, you know, like 98% of the time. So it's, um, yeah, it, 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 we will get there with it. Um, and I think this is, these algorithms are going to help make us safe. Um, but the predictive elements of this um, and other elements, the behavior elements are, are becoming clear differentiators, not just for cybersecurity, but for better personalization of financial services as well. So in 2025, um, I talk about the battle for the smart bank account is that mobile wallets like our you know, Apple Pay, Google Pay, that type of infrastructure will be competing side by side with bank accounts based on their intelligence and how they mold to your financial financial needs in real time. For example, access to credit, you know, like walking into a grocery store and getting a message on your phone, like, hey, it looks like you don't have enough cash to get your groceries today. Here's some additional cash to make the purchase. Instead of letting you get to the cashier's point, checking out and then having your card decline because, you know, your mortgage came out or your salary hasn't hit the account yet. You know, so a lot of the AI stuff that's in development right now is going to make consumers' financial lives a lot easier and also going to be really um, much much more effective at helping us save money and promoting financial wellness. 
wow, this is really, this is good. And I I really want to talk about the e-payments and and the infrastructure, Um, you know, and also, you know, some tips on what people can do to protect their money and to protect themselves. Um, We're about to go on a break, um, but I really want to, I want to get into those talking points when we get back because, and, and a little bit on the supply chain issues. I mean, you know, I, Matt, my, my husband went today to get the fixings for green bean casserole for Thanksgiving, and he's had to go to three stores to just get the, the uh, cream of mushroom soup. Crazy. It's absolutely, it's absolutely crazy and insane. So, um, yeah, so, so we'll talk about the security of the e-payment systems, and we'll talk about some things that people can do to really help themselves, to protect themselves and their, and their money. Um, when we come back to, from break, um, we're going to go on break right now. And when we come back, we'll be back with Brett King and with Scott Schober, and we will continue talking about your finances, your money, the economy with the king of fintech, Brett King. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to My Connected Life with Tyler Cohen Wood. To reach the show during the live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Tyler at tylercohenwood.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to My Connected Life. I'm your host, Tyler Cohen Wood, and I'm joined with my regular uh, guest host, uh, guest co-host, Scott Schober, and the king of fintech, Brett King. Brett, welcome back. Um, Thanks. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the infrastructure and some of the issues that we're facing there. 
Well, you know, I, I, um, the U.S. has aging infrastructures, not just bridges and roads, but, you know, obviously supply chain. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of effort to automate uh, this supply chain, um, you know, sort of constraints. Um, we see automation coming into uh, shipping ports and rail systems. And we're talking about autonomous vehicles, um, you know, electric vehicles and things like that. All of this is sort of part of this uh, evolution of sort of core infrastructure. But at the, at the heart of it is also things like in, basic internet access. And we've still got parts of America that, you know, where internet access is, is very poor. Um, so, you know, we can point to things like SpaceX Starlink, which is a satellite constellation that will enable access to the internet uh, to about 98% of the uh, the population on Earth. Wow. Um, you know, uh, and technologies like that that um, are really improving. But um, I think the important thing is to understand is that we're moving into a stage in terms of economics in the 21st century where the skills and the infrastructure you need are completely different from that of the 19th and 20th century. And so that evolution needs to be more of a systemic approach. It includes the way we educate our children for the skills that are coming in the future that need, need to be, they need to be trained for. It, it requires, um, you know, uh, again, in, internet, interconnectivity on the supply chain side. It requires uh, regulation around ethics and the use of robotics and artificial intelligence in society. I mean, there's a ton of work that we have to do on infrastructure to be 21st century ready. And what we talk about in, in the rise of techno-socialism is the fact that China is well ahead of the United States in terms of this sort of basic infrastructure investment. They spend 8% of GDP every year on infrastructure. And you've seen how much difficulty we've had in just the past few months trying to get the infrastructure bill passed. So, um, you know, we're really going to have to pick up our game there in the US to compete with China on a long-term basis. Wow. Um, you, you, had, you had mentioned um, a little bit earlier, we started to talk about the e-payment systems. Um, do you think that these e-payment systems are really going to take over uh, traditional, you know, credit cards and, and, and accounts? And, you know, how secure are these going to be? Because if you're using your phone, you know, we know there are so many insecurities with your phone. You know, it's I, I, I always like to say, which could ruin your life more, mm -hmm. losing your physical wallet or your phone? And Definitely I think we phone. all know the answer to that. Yeah. Well, um, I'm get ready to have your mind blown. Um, I'm ready. I'm ready. Because, and I, I think most of your listeners won't be aware of this either, but um, 2017 was the year Recording that, in progress. That, that mobile wallets overtook plastic cards globally as the primary day-to-day -day mechanism for payments, 2017. Wow. And in 2020, just the two mobile payments players out of China, Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay, who are incidentally in 150 countries now, uh, just those two players did $66 trillion of volume through their networks. All of the credit cards, debit cards, gift cards, uh, you know, plastic cards in the world, 32 trillion, less than half. And so mobile wallets are already, uh, you know, offshore, the primary way people make payments. You've got 
um, M-Pesa in Kenya, you've got MTN in Nigeria, you've got Kakao and, um, you know, in South Korea, Paytm in India, you've got PayPal and Square Cash here. Um, you know, so the fact is that mobile payments are already dominating um, plastic cards. Plastic cards are still growing in terms of usage, but much slower than, than mobile payments. But um, the mobile payments arena in terms of safety is, as I said before, depending on the network, mobile payments can be 10,000 times safer for a consumer to use compared with a, a card not present transaction using a plastic card. So, um, you know, we, we do seriously need to start thinking about migrating to mobile wallets that have multi-factor, you know, security mechanisms built into it. Um, Scott, to your point before, um, you know, when we started Movin, which was the first mobile challenger bank in the United States, one of the things we did when people were applying for an account is we would check the IP address of their smartphone or physical device they were using to onboard with the address they'd given us. And that was always an easy red flag to pick up because if you fill out your address as California, but your, you know, um, your, your IP address is showing in North Korea, that's a pretty dead giveaway. That's a Big fraudulent, a fraudulent uh, um, transaction, right? Yeah. And, and unless you're using a VPN and and you're making yeah. yourself appear to come from from someone somewhere else. True. Yeah. Yeah. That that does add a little bit of a mystery in there. And I I often use um, digital wallets. I use Apple Pay, um, right. and, and I, I try to follow it pretty closely. I do not hear of any specific breaches toward the Apple Pay ecosystem. Early on, right. when it was introduced, there was a lot of uh, misreporting about it, so on and so forth, where they were really targeting the banks and trying to kind of do a backdoor and get in there and uh, socially engineer their way in to set up accounts and things. But you don't really hear about much fraud associated with Apple Pay or Google Wallets. And I think that's because of the, the, the encryption that's there. They're not sending the credit card information back and forth through the ecosystem. So ultimately, security is really the basis of it. Yet the adoption of it just hasn't happened as fast as I would like, or at least acceptance of it, which yeah. is kind of troublesome to me. Every time I go to the register, I say, oh, do you guys accept Apple Pay? And they're like, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. I think we do. You know, there's a What's lot of that? That hesitation. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a shame because I really find yeah. it not just secure, but it's actually convenient too. Instantly on my phone, I see how much went through. I got a confirmation. I have a record of it in my hand and I'm controlling it. I'm using my authentication to verify the payment here and now, as opposed to did my card just get skimmed or hacked? It's yeah. really disturbing that they're not pushing more. And I guess part of it's the the legalities and the protection that's in place in the United States, especially the laws are too good here to protect us from credit card fraud because we're paying it out in, in, in fees basically right. each month because of all the fraud. It, it kind of goes counterintuitive to just fixing the problem. So they're just kicking well, the can down the road. <laughs> think about the fact that up until very recently, your primary security mechanism for a credit card transaction in the United States was a physical signature. Yeah. A first yeah. century artifact, yeah. right? Yeah, Mickey, Mickey Mouse, and they accept it. It's, and, and, yeah. <laughs> it's always um, hard for me because my signature is like a straight line because I'm left-handed, whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, I always ask people, just to, to your point there, Brex is brilliant. Uh, everybody says, oh, no, I, I, I've got chip and pin in my credit card. And I say, okay, I'm curious. How often okay. do you actually enter a pin in? And they're like, yeah. what do you mean? 
They don't even know what it well, is. And the United States hasn't really adopted the same chip and pin yeah. as the European as, as Europe. It's it's different. And it's much the, more the, U, the U.S. was actually the last country in the world to yeah. adopt the EMV standard. North Korea adopted yeah. the EMV standard before, <laughs> before we did. Right. And when I, I used to talk to regulators about this all the time, like I remember back in 2012, you know, at the Chicago Fed having this debate on EMV that we need to move to EMV. And I was told the U.S. will never accept EMV because it's a European standard. Right. Yeah. And um, so a lot of the times we sort of shoot ourselves in the foot with that sort of stuff, because, you know, if it's not grown here, then we're not going to use it. But ultimately, things are moving so rapidly now that we have to use whatever technologies we can to secure, you know, consumers wallets and their bank accounts. I think that's absolutely critical. Um, and the reality is, I do think of this as digital infrastructure for the 21st century. You know, we saw it during the pandemic. You know, if you wanted to do telemedicine, you need digital ID. You know, for our children's access to education, you're going to need digital ID. The 21st century is all going to be about this digital services layer emerging in real time on top of these technologies that we have. And we, are, we need better identity infrastructure. So, um, you know, we keep coming back to that, but that's something that um, where, you know, if you're looking at mobile wallets versus uh, plastic cards, that's one of the key differentiations. We've got better identity protections in mobile wallets. We can look at your behavior. We can look at where your phone is. So if a transaction takes place and your phone's in a different location from the point of sale, that's another red flag where we can immediately stop. You know, you, uh, people that use mobile wallets save more money because, you know, to Scott's point earlier, when you're getting that feedback about what you're spending, you know, when you look at your Apple Pay, you know, or your, you know, Goldman Sachs uh, Apple Card, you know, and you, you see that you've spent 150 bucks on dining out already this month, then, you know, you reduce your spending in dining out, which you don't get that sort of feedback from, uh, you know, effectively a dumb plastic card that doesn't give you any information except whether the transaction was successful or not. What, what what is being done to to protect those mobile wallets from other applications on the phone? I know you can go into various settings um, and you can you can give permissions to to various things, but you know what specifically is done on on your phone to protect those payments from other apps grabbing access to anything coming from there. Uh, well, Apple, you know, has a slight advantage in this respect with the secure enclave, but, um, you know, the way players like, so, you know, essentially the information around your identity and things that, you know, your your cards that are held in the mobile wallet, that's encrypted and inaccessible, um, you know, from within the phone, um, you know, on its own. Um, but, um, you know, we uh, see other um, security mechanisms being built into the other wallets and so forth. First of all, think about the fact that, you know, you are using a security mechanism on your phone, using facial recognition to open the phone or a fingerprint. That's a layer of security yep. that um, we don't have with a credit card. Secondly, we have the um, geolocation of your phone and can, we can pair that with the point of sale. That's a second piece of security. Um, you know, we can encrypt or tokenize your credit card information in the wallet or even better, you know, use other, other mechanisms to, uh, to encrypt and secure. So we have multiple options on the mobile wallet to secure a transaction that we just simply don't have when it comes to uh, plastic cards. Yeah, I think just to add to that, when I, when I think about it, 
you reach in a purse or a wallet, you've got something physical there. You see the card, you can take a picture of it, you copy it down, remember the numbers, whatever. You can't reach into a phone and take out a credit card number. To Brett's point, it's tokenized. It's a single it's use. Yeah, single yeah use, one yeah. time. That's it. And, and, and it's hardware. The, the secure enclave inside of an Apple um, is really hardware encryption. And then they also have a layer of software. So it's end-to-end encryption. So it's kind of double protection. Again, nothing to knock Google, Google, Google Wallet. They, they focus more on the software side of it. But again, very secure. Both of them, very secure and convenient. They're not sending your credit card number that somebody right. could intercept in the ecosystem. I think that's really the, to, to keep it at a high level, the simple point. Whereas when you're getting on a computer and you're entering your credit card, if you're buying something, it's not always encrypted properly. You don't know. You can't control that from site to site. Um, so there's a lot of disadvantage using physical plastic. I'm, I'm hoping the day that physical plastic goes away and, and even more so maybe the mag stripe on the back. That to me is still the most oh, frustrating thing. Frustrating, yes. It's so easy to read that. And there's so many skimmers and ATMs and gas pumps and everywhere and point of sale terminals that it's almost a losing battle because again, the, the payment infrastructure that's out there to replace all of that would be costly. Yet, if you look at that in comparison to the fraud each year, you start to say to yourself, geez, maybe this is, is bad money after good money or, or vice versa. So well, in, in, ni- in 2019, um, 130, um, uh, $130 billion of credit f- crowd fraud globally. Yeah, so oh. big number. Crazy, which is preventable. (laughs) It's preventable, and 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 back to your earlier point, Brett. What was that number that you gave? Did you say that that these e payments are four hundred percent more secure than using plastic? Ten thousand times. I'll give you the exact numbers. Right, thousand times. So, Alipay, um, you know, is the the bigger Chinese mobile payment network. They just had Singles Day. You know, it's their equivalent of, of black. You know. Uh, Black uh, Friday deals, um, and they did $85 billion of sales in one day. So that's you know, huge. Um, that's like twice what Amazon did last year for, for Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And the, at their peak, they were handling 460,000 transactions per second. Now, cool. Visa has a theoretical peak of 32,000 transactions per second, but it's never, they've, never been, you know, they've never tested that limit. On those transactions, they had 0.0006 basis points of fraud. Card not present fraud in North America is 11.2 basis points. That's the hard numbers. So it's not even close. Um, and so if you're a bank today and you're still issuing credit cards and debit cards to customers, you do so knowing that um, you are going to have to absorb much more fraud costs than you were if, if you were supporting mobile wallets, as an example. Wow. So, so it sounds like if people are going to be doing Black Friday shopping, they should be using an e-payment if system. If you've got a wallet, use a wallet. Absolutely. Use it. Yeah. Yeah. Or use a credit card, which you have better fraud protection than a debit card if it's stolen. But um, That's, yeah. that is true. Yeah. And, and, and you can also use these accounts, by the way, your digital wallets with traditional means. If you're going to yeah. use a credit card, we went to Chipotle the other night and, and we simply paid with Apple Pay. So, again, you're, you're getting convenience there. You're getting the security, but you're not whipping out that physical plastic or entering in your physical credit card number there. So, finding that right balance, I think once consumers try it, then they'll say, 
oh, this is actually not that difficult. This is actually more convenient and I can actually see my transactions. Oh, and by the way, they tell me it's more secure. It's a win-win-win to me. Significantly more secure. If you're living in China or Hong Kong or Singapore or even the UK these days, people, you know, spend their entire lives these days without carrying a wallet with physical cards now. They just use they just use their mobile, um, and um, you know, in China it's even more acute. You know, no, like, no nobody. The, the China's cash usage went down from ninety eight percent of retail transactions being cash focused in twenty fourteen to today about thirty percent. Um, so that's the effect that mobile wallets have had there. It's it's really, and we're going to see in 2022, to your point, Tyler, um, you know, we're going to see the first use of a mobile wallet with a central bank digital currency at the Beijing Olympics. So if you go to the Beijing Olympics, you have to use a mobile wallet to buy things at stores there, and you'll be using a the digital one, the E1 for those purchases, because um, that's how you have to cash up your wallet. So pretty uh, pretty interesting that we're actually seeing at a national level, uh, you know, a government-supported wallet scheme uh, with a cryptocurrency effectively. How, how long do you think before the U.S. adopts that? Well, the U.S. is uh, doing five trials right now in respect to central bank digital currencies. But the the risk for the U.S. is the U.S. is already the world, you know, U.S. dollar is already the world's reserve currency. But, you know, we have weakened that a little bit with quantitative easing and so forth in recent times. The value of the U.S. dollar is declining. That's part of the reason for the inflation that you were talking about earlier. Um, you know, the, the dollar just doesn't buy as much as it used to. Um, but at the same time, you know, global commodity trade, about 50% of which is energy-based, is based on US dollar. Um, And so if the US introduces a central bank digital currency, you know, they're they're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, because it will weaken the use of traditional US dollar in respect to commodities trades, for example. China doesn't have those disadvantages. It can, you know, the one isn't a strongly traded currency for global trade. They can shift to a CBDC on the Belt and Road, and they can really disrupt the US dollar, but it doesn't have a real impact at home in terms of the strength of their currency generally. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, the U.S. is, I would say, on payment side generally, um, the U.S. is now about 10 years behind China, which is that gap's growing and we have to do something about it. Is, is Europe adopting it quicker? Yeah, Europe is still a little conservative in respect to some of these things. Um, but, you know, you, there's, there's centers of activity where you have high adoption of uh, these things. Uh, of course, um, we have... Um, fintech challenges in Europe, challenger banks such as Revolut and N26, Monzo, Starling, et cetera, that have been very successful there. And so there's other elements of, um, you know, adoption in um, in Europe that uh, where we see a, a clear differentiation. N26, for example, which is one of the largest challenges in the world, they raised $900 million back in October for, you know, their business. Um, and they are now the second largest bank by market capitalization in Germany, um, you know, and so to that point, the German regulators have actually sort of capped their growth at 70,000 new customers a month because they were just growing so quickly in that market. Wow. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. What, what, what do you see happening really in the next couple of years in terms of, of, of the economy, the American economy? You know, one of the concerns that I have is that, 
you know, the, the U.S. is kind of, it may slowly lose its kind of superpower status. Um, and a lot of it is going to be due to some of the economic issues that we're, we're facing right now. Well, you know, we expect that China will surpass the U.S. in terms of GDP um, and sort of size of the economy by 2030. Um, You know, China has a middle class that is rapidly growing right now. By 2030, they'll represent 25% of the world's middle class. The U.S. middle class is shrinking. Um, So we have some functional deficiencies in the U.S. economy, um, and it's really built around the problem of equality and a living wage and things like that. So there's some fundamental issues we really have to do some navel gazing on and and think about in respect to policy. Um, You know, capitalism is great when it works, but, um, you know, right now, um, you know, we have some clearly functional problems when it comes to supply chain and so forth. So um, modernizing infrastructure, thinking about the US economy as a digital 21st century economy and starting to build policy and infrastructure that will enable us to compete, um, you know, well into the 2050s, as an example, um, should be a big concern at the policy level. But we're just, we're not seeing that as yet. Wow. That's, yeah. I mean, you know, I hope that, 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 you know, there are some hopeful things in the future. And I think some of the innovations that we've talked about, especially, you know, the, these financial innovations, uh, fintech, you know, moving to e-wallets, you know, is, is going to help, you know, but what, one of the things that, that bothers me is that we have um, unemployment that is, is, is quite high in the U.S. right now. And I look at the field I'm in, cybersecurity, where we don't have enough people in the world to right. fill all the jobs that we need. So in, what we should really be focusing on is training people at a mid-level point in their career that have lost their jobs right. who want to move into cybersecurity, mm-hmm. get those people into those jobs because they're great paying jobs. Um, and there's so many different aspects to cybersecurity. People think that cybersecurity is you're sitting in like a dark room coding and drinking, you know, jolt cola, but that's not true. There's so many different avenues. For every STEM PhD graduate in the United States, for every one, China produces three. Right. And that's because our education system is not geared towards these sort of science, technology, engineering, math uh, pieces. We've got kids in university today doing finance and accounting degrees. When they come out of university, uh, AI will have already taken the jobs that they're being trained for. We really need to think about the way we train our kids for these next generation of jobs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and I think about me, me too. You know, when I was a kid, the jo- I, I, my job did not exist. Um, digital forensics and then special comms for DIA, that, those things didn't exist. So I look at my 11-year-old niece who, you know, again, recently got the starring role in her school play. And I think, what is she going to do in her future? Yeah, yeah. And, she, and the job that she does may not even exist right now. Absolutely. And the really interesting thing is um, by the la- like the second half of this century, humans are just not going to have to work as much. The role of work in society is going to change as well because of automation. So I know we're running out of time, but I'll leave you with that thought. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, Brett. Man, you, you, you really have blown my mind. I'm going to go have to like go outside and like say, whoa, mind blown. Thank you for thank you for being here. You're the welcome. king of fintech. Join us next week where we have a very special episode. We have YouTube stars David and David from Pay It Forward 
take out your phone because we are going to go through every setting in your phone and we're going to tell you what to turn on, what to turn off on your phone and your kids' phones to help keep yourself safe when operating in the online domain. Thank you so much. This is Tyler Cohen Wood with My Connected Life. Thank you for being here and we'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to My Connected Life. We have much more for you next Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be careful with your data and your life.